Well, I'm Pastor David. It's my privilege to bring a message from God's Word. And so if you turn to Judges chapter 6, that's where we, where we are going to be spending all of our time this morning. Judges chapter 6. And this is actually the continuation of our sermon series from the book of Judges. And we have had two, two sermons already for two by Pastor Jeremy. And today we are in chapter 6 talking about Gideon. Perhaps one of the best known judges of Israel. And this will be a three-part sermon series. In other words, in Gideon, about Gideon itself that we will be having three sermons. So this is simply the first installment of that sermon this morning. Now, one of the things that we might want to be aware of as we study the book of Judges is this. This is a narrative history of Israel. Narrative means stories. In other words, events as they happened, and the author basically wrote it down. And many times what happens is when the, when the authors write narrative passages, they don't tell you the meaning of that particular event. They just tell the story as it happened. In other words, let's say 9-11 happened here in the United States. And if, so if the true narrator of that history will simply say, here is what happened, without giving his or her interpretation of that particular event. And so as a result, what happens is you, know, you read these stories, and you are left to wonder, exactly what does this mean? And, and for that reason, what, what, needs to be, what we need to do is that we need to be very, very careful in interpreting narrative passages when we study them. Otherwise, what happens is, you know, I might read this and come up with one kind of an interpretation, and some of you might read it and come up with a different interpretation that they might even contradict with one another. At the end of the day, what matters is that we get to the original author's intent, and we do our very best to get as close as possible to the original author's intent. And that's what we are trying to do. The original author is not here. He is dead and gone for you know, several thousand years. And therefore, we try our best to get at the original meaning. Now, thankfully for us, over time, scholars have developed ways of studying these narrative passages. So this morning, I would like to introduce you to one such methodology. There are a few of them. But this is one of the things that I find it very useful. I go back to time and time again. So I want to introduce you to this methodology. Again, for the rest of the Judges series, you might want it every time that you read a chapter or a, or a story or an event or a narrative history, you might want to try and use and see if you could get to the original author's intent and therefore the meaning of that particular passage. All right? So here it is. This is referred to as the monomythic cycle. It's an excellent way to study stories. Usually what would happen is you will see the story begins with everything is fine in the life of a person or in the life of a nation and you know, everything seems to be going well and let's call that the summer number one. Then what happens in this story, something happens and as a result, the normalcy is disrupted, and there's a fall. There's a shock. Something has happened. Everybody's upset, whatever that might be, and that is referred to as fall. That is number two. 
But the story doesn't stop with the fall. It gets worse and worse and worse and worse until it becomes intolerable. Not only for the people who are actually in the story, but even for, the, for people like us who are reading the story, it becomes so intolerable. You get upset. You get angry. You get frustrated. And let's call that number three, winter. Then you will see here, I'm going to show it here on your left-hand side, there's a twist right here. Can you see it? There's a twist. Previous slide, please. There's a twist right there. Something so unexpected. You are not expecting it to happen. Something so surprising, so unexpected, and it might even be thrilling. Whatever that you, because you are, remember that you are in the depth of the winter, and all of a sudden, something happens to turn the story around, and we will refer to that as a surprising element or a twist in the story. And as a result of this uh, twist in the story, the story improves. And here we are in spring with all these flowers and good weather and, you know, all of those different things. And then eventually we return to life as normal. Perhaps it could be a new normal or the same normal, regardless of what, we have returned to a peaceful state. All right? Here's the important thing. It is at this twist... The main meaning, the main idea, the main message of, this, of, the, of that particular story lies. You can use this in watching movies. You can re- use this in reading novels. You can read this in storybooks, whatever. Try this. You will be surprised. That's where the twist or the surprising element, that's where the meaning of the story lies. Now, the next slide I want to overlay with this, the sixth Steps of the redemptive cycle that Pastor Jeremy introduced to us two weeks ago or three weeks ago when he preached the very first sermon in the book of Judges. So what happens here is that again, you know, life starts very normal. Summer, let's call it peace. Everything is peaceful. And story begins that way. Then what happens in biblical stories, something happens to, there's a fall. In this case, it happens to be in the redemptive cycle. It's sin. Our own sin or the person in the story, whoever is sinning, they are doing something that they shouldn't be doing. Most of the time, it's sin. And as a result of sin, there's a fall. There's your fall. And because we have sinned, God decides to discipline us. So God disciplines, and therefore, by his discipline, he takes us further and further and further into despair. Because he's trying to teach us a lesson. He's trying to mold us into the shape of Jesus Christ, in in the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And so it gets worse and worse as the discipline becomes harder and harder to bear. Then there's a surprising twist And most of the time, it is repentance. But in today's story, we will find it is not repentance. But most of the time, it's repentance. People repent. They come to realization through discipline that they have sinned, and therefore they begin to repent. And that's a twist in the story. And as a result, they get to the spring, and then the deliverance comes after repentance, and they return to a peaceful state. And that's the way that I'm going to study Gideon 
story here in chapter 6. Now let's jump into Judges chapter 6. And if you have your Bibles, please open to, to page 260. If you're using the blue Bible that's provided by the church, it's on page 260. It's an Old Testament book. Now, last week, we heard from Pastor Jeremy that under Deborah and Barak, the Israelites defeated the Canaanites. And in celebration of this, they wrote a song and sang it. And if you, for example, turn to chapter 5, that's what it's all about. It says, if you have a Bible, it says a song of Deborah and Barak. It is in celebration of the victory that they have had against the Canaanites. And if you go to chapter 5, the very last verse, verse 31, the second half of verse 31, this is what it says. And the land had rest for 40 years. That's, the, that's how the story begins. It was a peaceful state. It's summer. It's peaceful. And that's how the Gideon story begins. Then in chapter 6, verse 1, we read this. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You see the sin? And all of a sudden, we are in this sin and fall state. The question is, what was their sin? What was their sin? We need to analyze this. For example, if we look at page, uh, verse 10, it says, you know, God is actually speaking to the Israelites through a prophet. Because what happens is, you know, the Israelites uh, did evil in the eyes of God, and God puts them, you know, uh, disciplines them through Midianites, and these people cry out to God, and he sends a prophet to them. And here's what the prophet says in verse 10. And God is speaking through this prophet. And so I, that, is mean, that means God, said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in those land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. It's a sin of idolatry. It's a sin of idolatry. Moreover, if you look at verse 25, this is what we read. Because now you know, there's an encounter that's happening between the angel of the Lord and also Gideon and the angel of the Lord saying to him, and let's read that, for example, verse, beginning in verse 25. That night the Lord said to him, that is Lord speak, or the angel of the Lord speaking to Gideon, take your father's bull and the second bull seven years old and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of town to do it by day, he did it by night. You see, what's happening here is that even Gideon's household was engaged in Baal worship, in the worship of Asherah, which she was a goddess of fertility 
in, 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 the, in, the, in the surrounding people, Canaanites and the Amorites. And not only that, this, this altar to Baal and also the uh, altar to the Asherah were in Gideon's father's land. That's how far they have fallen into their idolatry. And let's pick it up in verse 28. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of town said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. You see the passion for idol worship? It was in Joash's land. Joash is actually Gideon's father. But the town people wanted to kill his son. That's the past, that's the kind of passion that they had for idol worship. Gone are the days of Deborah and, and Barak when God gave them 40 years of rest. Gone are the days. Now they have fallen back. And so the sin resulted in the fall. So what happens? Because of the sin of idolatry, God disciplines them by handing over to the Midianites. Let's go back to verse 1 through 6. And here's what happens. Now it's a discipline phase. Summer and peace, and then fall, there's sin, and now God begins to discipline. And here it is. The people of Israel, six, chapter 6, verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. God decides to punish them for seven years. And the land of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made, them, made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and strongholds. They were hiding in caves. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. For that they laid waste the land as they came in. And the Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. You see that? That's the punishment. That's the discipline. Because God wants his people back to him. Worshipping him and him alone and not anybody else. And there's a lot to say there. But... Verse 6, and Israel was brought very low. They have sunk so deep. When they farm and they produce you know, for themselves to eat, and the Midianites will come and take them all away. And sometimes they let their camels and animals and herds eat them away. 
And these people couldn't do anything with it. And then this winter becomes intolerable. That's the idea. You know, God takes us to a point when disciplines, it takes us to a point where it becomes so intolerable. Because remember that he is still molding and shaping us in, his, in the image of his son. And so whatever that needs to happen in our lives to smoothen the rough edges, God is willing to go to that length in terms of his discipline. So for example... He sends his prophet, and the, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. And verse 7, here it is. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on the account of Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from, the, from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. And here's the clincher. But you have not Listen to my voice. Imagine yourself sitting there and listening to the words of the prophet. What would you say to yourself? You would say, God has spoken. Help is not coming. It's over. Because God said, you have not listened to my voice. Help is not coming. If you, if you heard that prophet sitting, sitting there with the Israelites and the prophet came and spoke and it's time for you to go home, how would you go home? You said to yourself, oh my word, the help is not coming. Have you felt that way? Through life circumstances? You see, if the story ended right there, it would have been devastating for the Israelites. It's, it appears as if God has spoken judgment and he's not going to do anything at this point. In fact, God will be totally satisfied if he did that. Because you know why? Because they cried out for help, but they were still having the altars for Baal and Asherah. They have not destroyed those. You see, it's like, you know, we have all of our idols, whatever those might be. We will talk about those later on. That we, you know, we cry out to God. Something happens, happens in our life and we cry out to God. God help me. God save me. God do something about this. But we have not repented. We have not done anything to change our life to be in alignment with God's purposes and priorities and his expectations. That's what's happening. They still had the altar for Baal. They still have the, had the altar for Asherah. And people of the town were upset that Gideon destroyed them. Showing their passion for worshipping false idols. God would have been totally, totally justified. If you said, you know what, I'm done. I'm not going to do anything. <clears throat> but here's where the surprising twist 
comes in. And that's where the main idea of the story lies. That's the meaning of the story. And here it is. An angel of the Lord appears to call and commission Gideon, who was in a state, was, who was an apostate, to deliver the apostate nation Israel from the hand of the Midianite. That's the surprise of surprises. Verse 11. <clears throat> now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Abzite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. <clears throat> you see, this begs the question, why would God choose an apostate leader like Gideon to deliver an apostate lead, a nation like Israel. That's the surprise of surprises. Why would he do that? The answer, my friends, is God's grace. It is unmerited favor toward those who are truly undeserved. Grace means unmerited favor. They had not repented. They still held Baal and Ezra. But somehow, long ago, God had made this covenant with Abraham, Noah and Abraham and you know, all of those different people and he cannot, he, he cannot get out of that. He chose this nation to, to spread his fame to other nations. God is a covenant-keeping God. And so the only way to get out of this bind is showing to show unmerited favor, which is called grace. So not only the nation of Israel, look at Gideon. He was a man filled with fear. For example, in verse 11 we read, he was beating out wheat in the winepress hide, to hide from the Midianites. You know, when you're, when you're uh, you know, on a threshing floor and, you know, you thresh the, 
bundle that you have, and then you take, separate the wheat from the chaff, and then you take the wheat, and it still has chaff, and you, know, you would go to a place where there's enough wind so that you could do the, like this, and, and the wind will blow over the chaff, and the, the wheat will fall down. He was not doing that in the open air where he could see some air. He was actually hiding in the wine press. Moreover, here's the other one. He took down the altar barrel and Asherah pole at night. Why? Because he was too afraid of his family and the men of his town. That's how fearful he was. He was a man of fear. Couldn't stand for God. Are you fearful? Second, Gideon was angry at and bitter toward God because he blamed God for his nation's present problems instead of putting the blame on their idolatry. Do you see that? He was angry at God. He was bitter toward God. Instead of accepting the fact that we have sinned, we have been in idolatry, we deserve what we, you have, the discipline that you are you know, giving us right now, instead he blames God. By saying, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And, and where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, do not the Lord bring us up from Egypt, but now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Have you been angry at God? Bitter towards God? For something that happened in your life? Gideon lacked confidence. You see, when the angel of the Lord asked him to go and save Israel from the hand of Midian, he said to the angel, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. He lacked confidence. Do you lack confidence? If God gives you a mission, if God gives you an assignment, do you have enough confidence to go and do it? If not, why not? Gideon lacked faith. Faith in God. He asked for signs from God three times, not just once, not just twice. Three times. He is a man who, had, who lacked faith. Faith in God. And we see that first in verse 17, for example, Gideon said to the angel of the Lord, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speaks to me. So then what happens is he runs to his house and you know, brings an offering of meat and unleavened you know, cakes and broth. And in verse 20, we pick it up this way. And the angel of the Lord said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock. And pour the broth over them. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand. And touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang upon from the rock and consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was with the angel of the Lord. And Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, the Lord is peace. That probably should have been enough, but not for Gideon. How about you? 
The fact that God, Jesus came and died and rose again and sat there in the heaven sitting at the right hand of the Father and interceding for us and then he will come again and judge and establish his kingdom forever and new heaven and new earth. Is that enough? Or we need more signs? And so he asked for a second sign. Verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. There's a second sign. That's not enough. Would that be enough for you and me? Verse 39. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night and it was dry on the fleece only and all on, 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 the, on all the ground there was dew. You know what? As I thought about this story, you know, it is not surprising that Gideon were asked. He lacked faith in God. He was angry at God. He was bitter toward God. He lacked confidence, Right? But what is surprising is that God kept providing these signs. It's unmerited favor from God. God would go to great lengths to remove his fear, his anxiety, to remove his anger toward God and perhaps anger towards the Midianites, you know, and... and, and his bitterness toward God and bitterness toward Midianites in order that he would build his faith up. Gideon was totally undeserving. But God did all of that anyways. And that's called grace. So here's the main message of this particular story in Judges chapter 6. It is God's grace that chooses truly undeserving people to deliver truly undeserving communities and even nations. By the way, did you, if you happen to, if you read this chapter, did you come up with the same idea? Because it's a story, it doesn't say openly, overtly, that this is about grace. That's why we need to be very careful in how we study narrative passages. Gideon was totally undeserving. His nation Israel was totally undeserving. Yet God in his grace chose to deliver them from the land, from the hand of the Midian. Grace means unmerited favor. God first extended that to Gideon and then through him to his nation Israel. How about us? Are we deserving? 
You see, the Bible says otherwise. Here it is, Ephesians chapter 2. And you and I were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's us. Like Gideon and Israel, we were totally undeserving of God's grace, his unmerited favor. Then verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace we have been saved through faith and this is not your doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's easy to read a story like Gideon's and say, what a fool. What an idiot, right? We are Gideon. I am Gideon. Collectively, we are the nation of Israel. Totally undeserving. But we are who we are today in Christ because of his unmerited favor, because of his grace. So here are some quickly some application points. If you are not a believer, you know what did God, the angel of the Lord asked Gideon to do? Pull down the altar of Baal and Asherah. Get rid of it. That's what, if, if we are unbelievers, that's what God is, would ask us to do. Get rid of the idols. Get rid of the sinful life. Get rid of worship, pursuing worship, you know, worldly passions. Get rid of disobedience. And instead, repent and believe and put your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. God would not excuse that. Before God would use Gideon, those altars for the idols had to go. That's the first thing that had to go. And God did that with Gideon. And God would ask us to do the same. Now, if you are in fear and anxiety and lack of confidence and courage, you know, all of those different things. You know, I don't know why, why the fear, fear can be the result of many things. Anxiety can be the result of many things. Lack of confidence and courage can be many things. For example, I don't know, during your growing up years, your parents, mom or dad told you you are good for nothing. Perhaps your teachers told you in class, you are good for nothing. And somehow that got into your brain and and every time that you wake up, you know, you remember that and you say to yourself, I cannot do this. And we lack confidence and courage. 
God gives us a mission and we don't go, you know, we don't do it because we lack confidence, we lack courage, and we, we fear the future, we are anxious about tomorrow, you know, things of that kind. And here's the verse for you, you know, study God's word, and here's what Hebrews chapter 13 says, God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's exactly what God told Gideon. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? Now, application for those who might be angry or at or bitter toward God. Again, something may have happened in your life that was so difficult, perhaps a you know, loss of a loved one or loss of a job or you know, a wayward child or whatever. You know, we, might be, we might be angry because we immediately question God. Where is God? If God is so good, why is he not doing anything right now? But have you ever thought about that God might be using these circumstances to shape and mold you into Christ-likeness? At the end of the day, that's the goal. That's God's goal. And here it is, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And here it is. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Do you believe that? So let's all stand. And I would like to end the sermon this way. If you are a believer, you should know all of this. And let's read this together as the assurance of our faith. These are all God's unmerited favor to us. So let's go. Let's read it together. As a result of God's grace, his unmerited favor toward me, I am redeemed and forgiven of all of my sins. I am justified. I am born of God, and the evil one cannot touch me. I am freed from any condemning charges against me. I am united with Christ. I am indwelt by the Holy Spirit. I am adopted into God's family. I am God's child. I am complete in Christ. I am a saint, a holy one. I am a temple of God. I am God's workmanship, created for good works. I'm not given a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, love, and sound mind. I'm confident that all things work together for good. I'm a branch of the true wine, Jesus, a channel of his life. I'm God's co-worker. I'm chosen and appointed by God to bear fruit. I am the salt of the earth and the light of the world. I'm a minister of reconciliation for God. I am seated with Christ in the heavenly realm. I am a citizen of heaven. I am confident that the good work God had begun in me will be perfected. Do you believe all of that? Let's pray. Lord, those are powerful, powerful things that you have given us because of your grace. We don't deserve it, Lord. But nevertheless, you have given those to us, and they are true. And Father, help us to live like people 
who have been saved by the grace of God. I pray for that for myself, and I pray for that for my brothers and sisters. In the name of Jesus, amen.